Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it is still spooktober. But, 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 before we get to this week's episode, we have to thank not one, but two new additions to our Patreon fold. Ooh, so exciting. So Charity and Lynette, thank you so, so much for your pledges of support. And if you'd like to hear your name come out of our mouths, listeners, visit patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and join our growing family of dirt bags. We've also gotten some really amazing sponsored episode topics in the past couple of weeks. And so those are on deck after our rock block of spooky episodes. And we are so excited. And speaking of excited, now for the show, Amber, what are we talking about today? This week, we're talking about the nature of evil. 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 Um, true crime is so hot right now, still. So hot. So, so I thought again. that... I know. And always. <laughs> so I thought that we should take a stab at it for ourselves and see how evil appears across societies and through time. Um, which proved Did you do hard. that on purpose? Take a stab at it? Yes, of course I did. <laughs> okay. Good job. Good job. But before I get ahead of myself, let's think about what evil even is. So This is a, a big I topic. know. This was a huge mistake. <laughs> let's keep it simple. This broke my brain. I know. <laughs> let's keep it simple because this is not a philosophy podcast. Boy, is it not. And I am not interested in reading your tweets correcting my takes on meta ethics. But put those tweets down. Put, put, put your down. tweets away. Um, so, but first, something fun. Let's take a quick look at the etymology of evil. <laughs> so, evil. Evil. Uh, it comes from the Old English evil. <laughs> Kentish evil, spelled like Knievel, um, meaning bad, vicious, ill, wicked. And it comes from the Proto Germanic evilaz. Um, so, that's another one of those. Um, projected languages because of the shared roots like we've oh, talked yeah. about before. I see the asterisk. Yeah, hey, that's what that means. Thing. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah. So the Proto-Germanic also gives you Old Saxon übel, um, Old Frisian and Middle Dutch evil, Dutch übel, Old High German übel, <laughs> German übel, and Gothic übels. Um, and it comes from Proto-Indo-European übel from the root wup meaning bad or evil, which is also the source of the Hittite word huop, meaning evil. So um, it sounds like someone did something like slightly bad and then went, whoop. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Who knew Hittites were actually Midwestern? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, can I just, oh, oh, sorry. In old English and other older Germanic languages, other than Scandinavian, um, 
the OED Wait. says, quote, this word is the most comprehensive adjectival expression of disapproval, dislike, or disparagement. Um, so evil was the word Anglo-Saxons used where we would use bad, cruel, unskillful, defective um, as an adjective or harm, crime, misfortune, or disease as a noun. Very versatile word. Yeah. In Middle English, bad took the wider range of senses and evil began began to focus on moral badness. Uh, But both Mm. of them still have good as their opposite. So Mm -hmm. evil favored in the 1520s meant ugly. (laughs) And there is an English surname from the 13th century, evil child. (laughs) Ah! Um, my new band name yeah um and so a cool thing here um so you know we were looking at the proto-germanic iblis um so i was thinking like oh wow like iblis is the name Mm. of like like the great shaitan in the quran so like shaitan being like a like a satan or a devil but like the big chief devil iblis like who is possibly satan um so that is actually derived from the greek diabolos um and diabolos means like sort of like thrown it's sort of like side talky like it's like you're talking because bolos like comes from the same word as ballistic so like throwing across but it's with respect to like your language yeah so it's sort of like Talking well, smack, talking so, out, talking out the side of your mouth, like, like talking. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's so it's a it's a it's like an idiomatic usage, but that's the root of it in Greek okay. itself. And so cool. Diabolos also gives us devil, uh, also right. known as devil or devil, <laughs> devil. Um, and so it's like so devil and evil sound similar. In, in English and in other yes. Germanic languages. Um, and then it, like, Iblis sort of works that way in Arabic. But the fact that these sound similar is actually just a folk etymology. They're totally not related at all. Interesting. And so it's just something that would be like, oh, yeah, like devil comes from evil and like, evil is the devil and that they, but actually they come from totally no, different they languages just they just happen the to sound alike yeah so the adverb in old english is ifle <laughs> originally mm-hmm. of words mm-hmm. or speech um and so as a noun in old english it referred to sin or wickedness or anything that causes injury morally or physically um and uh, the meaning quote extreme moral wickedness end quote, was one of the senses of the old English noun, but it wasn't until the 18th century that it became like the main sense. Um, hmm. Middle English also had evilty <laughs> as a noun. <laughs> so we're looking at Is the that- nature of evilty. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh. and so um, we're going to now we're going to get going. Um, and something that's important to remember in this and all episodes of The Dirt, um, and something which not all of our sources have done, is, Boy, to, howdy, have to, <laughs> is to try to understand human belief and behavior within its own context without pushing the observer's views or biases onto it. This is called cultural relativism. The idea that a person's beliefs, values, and practices should be understood based on that uh, 
that person's own culture rather than be judged against the criteria of another, especially one that has like more power or right is now. Um, so a related yes. concept to this is positionality, um, which is a more introspective approach to anthropology, which asks the anthropologists mm-hmm. to critically examine their own context, to name it, and then accept that it's like, it's actually impossible to set it aside completely or turn it off altogether as they try to understand another society. Yeah, we're inherently shaped by what we learned and how we were raised and, you know, the, and, the and who socioeconomic we are and, yeah. position. Yeah, exactly. So um, we, we can't divorce ourselves from that. But we, you and I, Amber, and, and we as sort of like the greater group of anthropologists can be mindful of that. Yeah. So... Since every society defines what is and is not normal differently, antisocial or wrong behavior is defined differently across societies. So we've got sort of a um, potpourri of different quotes and from different sources here. So I'm going to go through some of them. This is from a student paper, the Manitoban, out of the University of Manitoba, from 2012. So, quote, we tend to see things as either inherently or objectively evil. The age-old debate of good versus evil often comes to mind when thinking about what we see as evil. There are two things, however, we must remember about evil when thinking in these terms. Evil and good are on a continuum that we often seem to overlook. As humans, we tend to like categories. They give us a mental and social tool that helps us make sense of things so that as so that we as a society can have shared meanings and thus function and communicate better together. Evil is a subjectively formed social concept. Depending on a certain society's beliefs and morals, ideas about evil are bound to be different from that of another society. A common theme among Western horror movies is that of ghosts or spirits, which we often see as scary, frightening, and evil. evil. Um, so something that I found, I end quote and me editorializing, something I found when I was searching for research articles for, for my little parts of this episode is a post on myjewishlearning.com. Your Jewish about learning? About demons, my, specifically mine. Uh, and uh, jewishlearning.com. <laughs> Yeah. About demons, ghosts, and golems in Judaism. So I was raised culturally Jewish, which I'm sure has come up on the podcast before, but disclaimer, I guess. I don't know. There's my framework. (laughs) Content warning. Yeah. Content warning. Cultural Judaism. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, boy. And so I still hang on to a number of traditions, but mostly because it ties me to my family. But these are some things that I did not learn about in Hebrew school, probably because this stuff is more linked to the Kabbalah, the more mystical side of Jewish belief, and definitely not what my family subscribed to when I was a wee one. So here is um, some excerpts from this article on myjewishlearning.com. Anna's Jewish Learning. The mythic structure of the Kabbalah provides many colorful answers to the question of good versus evil. Demons and dibbics, golems and ghosts are all the results of misspent life energy. But the Kabbalah does not develop its ideas out of nowhere. They are part of a long history of Jewish speculation about Shadim, demons, also a word used to refer to foreign gods, and demonic personalities such as Lilith. The Talmud, which is a codified that book makes me of sound Jewish... like a BJ. <laughs> Demonic demo- personality, Lilith. <laughs> She's an influencer. I'm sure she is. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Sure. It's got okay. a whole fair named after her. 
I gotta go. <laughs> the Talmud, which is a book of codified Jewish ceremonial law and legend, has a rich, though vague, demonology. <laughs> my favorite kind. Rich and vague. That's how I like my men. <laughs> rich and vague. <laughs> <laughs> Houses of study are described as being filled with demons when sexual energy is not properly channeled. Is this high school? <laughs> that just describes high school. Great rabbis are able to perceive demons sitting on the right and left hands of every person. They are able to harness the divine creative energies to create animals, which can then be consumed for food. And in the Talmudic world, spirits are everywhere. They haunt dark places, homes, even the crumbs left on the dinner table. And then much to my chagrin, this article did not mention any farther these haunted ghost crumbs. And I really wanted to know more about haunted crumbs. I didn't look into it, but I oh, should. Oh, crumbs. Little ghost crumbs. The mythic narratives of the Kabbalah may be difficult for us to understand today, but not if we situate them within the deep concerns, particularly those related to conception and childbirth, of the Kabbalists and ordinary Jews who lived in a time of great uncertainty. Just as bearing children was central to one's identity, it was also rife with peril. Miscarriage, infant mortality, illness, and birth defects were all far more common in the medieval world than they are today. Bearing children was awesome and terrifying." as, of course, was death. If we are all possessed of life energy, then what happens to that energy when we die? Ideally, it returns to its source, but sometimes the process goes wrong. In such cases, a variety of ills evils, may befall the soul. The most well-known of these is the phenomenon of the dibbuk, or possession, when one soul, quote-unquote, sticks onto another. Possession by a dibbuk can happen for a number of reasons. Perhaps the departed soul is sinister and the living person innocent, or conversely, the departed soul may have been saintly but wronged by the living. In this case, possession by a dibbuk is essentially punishment or revenge for an improper act. Or, apparently, possession may also happen almost at random. There are other possession possibilities as well. A soul may visit a person during sleep, bringing messages from the beyond or prophecies about the future, or it may haunt a place, as in popular ghost stories. Sometimes, the soul of a departed righteous person may, quote, impregnate the soul of a living person, the process described by Lurianic Kabbalah as Ibor, though unlike the Dybbuk, Ibor is usually positive, not negative. Sometimes a righteous soul undergoes Ibor so it can complete a task or perform a mitzvah, which is a, like a, a good deed, but really it, it translates as commandment. So it's like doing a righteous thing. Sometimes it does so for the benefit of the host soul. Really, Ibor is no different from possession by a Dybbuk, but practically speaking, they are polar opposites, as the former is benign and the other sinister. The article goes on to also mention golems, but that's sort of less relevant here. So let's move on. And this is the abstract of a from a volume called The Anthropology of Evil. How relevant. Uh, edited by David Parkin. So. Quote, evil may be said to be shadowy, mysterious, covert, and associated with night, darkness, secrecy. It is a force acting to destroy the integrity, happiness, and welfare of, quote, normal society. It is at once the cause and the explanation of misfortune, of the wretchedness of human existence, and of our own individual wrongdoing. That, at any rate, is substantially the Western Christianity and pre-Christian view. 
yet different societies have opted for very different sets of explanations, which have themselves evolved in radically contrasting ways. There are societies, for example, in which there is no concept of evil. The anthropology of evil discusses the problem in the context of different societies and religions, Christian, Confucian, Buddhist, Hindu, and Muslim, for example. It also provides unusual perspectives on questions such as the nature of innocence, the root of evil, the notion of individual malevolence, and even whether God is evil. Yeah, and like that's how the abstract Yeah, that's how the abstract ends. It's like And finally, from the Huffington Post. Uh, Ariana Huffington has a wonderful accent and it's a delight to listen to. Uh, Okay, so this is an article in the Huffington Post. Quote, evil does not describe everything bad that we do. Humans make mistakes. Sometimes we're jerks. Preach. Sometimes we're short of temper. Sometimes we're flippant or rude. Sometimes we forget to recycle the can of soup. Sometimes we don't dip our waiters. Evil is a word I prefer, I, the author, prefer to reserve for the bigger crimes against life. The smaller things are the smaller sins or errors of our ways. Moving forward, though, I'm going to stick with using the word sin to describe the smaller human errors, the smaller intentional errors. Calling a bad deed an error or a mistake is sometimes appropriate, but sometimes it sounds like we're talking about a math problem and not a human crisis. Separated from the notion of original sin and heavenly judgment, the concept of sin is still relevant. Sometimes we wrong life in small and big ways, intentionally or not, through our actions or through our lack of actions, and that's sinful. The greater atrocities that humans perennially perpetuate are grounded in the abject loss of any human sense of interdependence. Evil separates you from me. It teaches us that we are alone in this world and that it's okay to act from that sense of separateness. On the small scale, being an island to oneself leads to greed, hate, fear, or envy. Each props up the ego, strengthening the ego's identity through isolation or groupthink. Oh boy. Taken to the extreme, these sins lead to horror. It's a sobering reason to check ourselves when we succumb to the smaller vices, lest they rule us. So th- this is where my philosophical tailspin started. So today you're not recycling the can of soup. Tomorrow you're like apologize, like you're, you're murdering. A- so I th- I think what well that's this is why I wanted to include this article or this this excerpt because this is where I started sort of thinking thoughts that were too big. And it, I think what the author is trying to say is that one of the primary things that informs a sense of what is good is social connectedness and interconnected, interconnectedness mm-hmm, as people. Mm-hmm. And so when we see the inverse of that, either through uh, an individual who is completely sociopathic or narcissistic, or through just like the breakdown of these cultural and social ties and, and a sense of isolation and, and sort of being alone. Um, that's when behavior is more likely that is sort of against these social existing social codes that that sort of for us can define good or evil. I think that's that was okay. my interpretation, and that's why I wanted to okay. bring that up. Yeah. So the the idea of um, antisocial behavior being at the core of what is actually evil mm-hmm. or how we define evil yes. is a um, is like a it's it's a a common a common thread, and so. Um, 
we the word so in the rest of this art in the rest of this script we're gonna the word psychopathy and words like antisocial behavior are going to be thrown a lot um and since i think this might be the closest that i ever get to screaming directly at all true crime fans uh, i want to start this off with a big old psa don't describe inconsiderate criminal or hurtful people as psychotic or psycho yep um I'm not telling you this out of consideration for the feelings of someone that has wronged or hurt you. I'm telling you this because it further statement against a huge population of people that live with and often struggle with a category of mental illnesses that get lumped together and written off as psycho. I'm talking about cluster B personality disorders, which, and I'm quoting from an article on the Mayo Clinic, quote, are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional or unpredictable thinking or behavior. They include antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, so these are all just um, like descriptions of how someone's brain is wired. And so like it's the yeah, medical description. It's a, yeah. And so it's a, um, and these, um, the research um, suggests that like all like almost all mental illnesses, it's a combination of genetic factors and environmental right. factors that lead to a, a host of symptoms. And those symptoms get sort of clumped together in meaningful clumps. And and then they can be diagnosed and treated. Yep. Um, and so in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's called the DSM, the fourth edition So we're at the fifth edition now, but the fourth edition defines these as follows. Um, Antisocial personality disorder um, is characterized by a pervasive disregard for the needs of others. Borderline personality disorder um, includes extreme black and white thinking, chronic feelings of emptiness, instability in relationships, self-image, identity, and behavior disturbances, often leading to self-harm and impulsivity. Histrionic personality disorder um, is characterized by pervasive attention-seeking behavior, including inappropriately seductive behavior and shallow or exaggerated emotions. And then narcissistic personality disorder is characterized by a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, Need for admiration and a lack of empathy. So there's also um, cluster A and cluster C, which are like cluster A is they're the ones that are like written off as like odd or eccentric. <laughs> and so they're sort of like clusters of traits that exist along a spectrum that kind of overlap. Um, and unfortunately, stigma is something that everyone with a mental illness is likely to encounter at some point in their life, either coming externally or internally. But those who fall on the spectrum of cluster B traits are often written off completely as evil, having a flawed character or just like irritating or like a lot. Um, so I'm going to quote a really, really great article um, that was published in 2016 in Current Psychiatry Reports, which says, quote, and, and this is uh, an entire article about stigma okay. among personality disorders and stigma coming from um, society, from um, like medical professionals, mm-hmm. and then internalized stigma and and how it and like structural stigma. So, quote, clearly stigma experienced by individuals with a personality disorder threatens to compound psychiatric symptoms and compromise treatment, especially when that stigma is perpetuated by health professionals or social institutions. Although longitudinal research shows that people with personality disorders do benefit from treatment and recovery, the misconception of personality disorders as untreatable may seriously limit efforts of service providers and development of comprehensive programs. Given the high suicide and self-harm, harm rates of people with B 
BPD, that's borderline personality disorder, endeavors to reduce stigma for this population are especially imperative. Contact-based anti-stigma interventions that that emphasize recovery possibilities and educate about biological underpinnings of personality disorders seem most promising. Finally, structural changes in the health and criminal justice system, including increased funding for research and services, (sighs) might help reduce disparate treatment of those with personality disorders, end quote. So the classification, so I was telling you what the DSM-4 says. Mm-hmm. The classification and, and definition of mental illness is is complex, as we've talked about on other episodes. And to a degree, it is socially constructed itself, um, which allows uh, something like what's happened with the DSM-5 now, which seems to be changing the way it's approaching and diagnosing personality disorders. And it's also um, something that came out with the DSM-5 was sort of opening new roads towards um, more research and finding other like metrics and rubrics for for understanding these. So um, that seems positive. I, yeah. So that um, article from Current Psychiatry Reports, I'm going to include in the show notes, and I really Great. recommend that folks check it out. Yeah, it um, there's really a really helpful table that illustrates sort of what happens at like as a result of stigma at different levels. Oh, and okay. It's, oh, and, interesting. And how it, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's and, and like and what the outcomes can be. Um and I but also just like really consider the words that you use to describe people that you consider to be bad actors. Yes. Um and so now let's take a little break. Let's It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. And we're back. And I am going to talk about, quote unquote, reasons for psychopathic traits. This is an article from Live Science called, quote, why it pays 
to be a bit of a psychopath. See the previous section. See previous talk about stigma and language use. However, this is it is genuinely describing um, a an interesting clinical study. So, despite the title, I will keep going. So, quoting from Life Science: A small fraction of people are aggressive, manipulative, and lack empathy or remorse, aka psychopaths. Given the social stigma psychopaths face, it's a mystery why such traits persist in society. In a new study, student volunteers who scored higher on a test of psychopathy acted more ruthlessly towards partners in a behavioral economics game when they felt disrespected by those partners or were unlikely to see them again. And this was reported in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. <laughs> oh, no. The it's... understudies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it was just probably like it, the for, the original publication was probably just too big. They split it off, but I don't know if like B is sub A or it's just like <laughs> also B. Anyway, the, the study findings suggest how psychopathic traits can exist in the population and be advantageous. Psychopathy is actually more of a continuum than one extreme disorder, evidence suggests. While fully blown psychopaths will break social norms what? unconditionally. <laughs> yet fully blown psychopaths, that well-known clinical term. People with mild psychopathic tendencies appear to betray people strategically. Which the, is Machiavellianism. Yes. Yeah. Which we will get to. Because yeah, is right. it? But I'm just... <laughs> I mean, it is. But is it? Okay. So <laughs> the study involved normal undergraduate students... Okay. No. Jeez. Uh, uh. <laughs> the authors wrote this. So, not, not me. Jerks. <laughs> <laughs> normal, yeah, even... Yeah, we were jerks. Like... I knew you when you were 19. We were yeah. probably both jerks. Probably. We weren't great. No. I mean, I was pretty not great. You were all right. I mean, I'm cooler now. Anyway, the study involved normal <laughs> undergraduate students around age 19. The students were divided into small groups and told to converse on a topic of their choice for 10 minutes. It's a mixer. Then they were separated and given a questionnaire to measure their psychopathic tendencies. The questionnaire asked them to rate their agreement with state Statements such as, quote, what matters for me is the bottom line, or I am often angry in social situations, end quote. Oh, no. <laughs> there are two kinds of psychopathy, but this study was looking at the classic, quote, conniving and cold, end quote, psychopaths. Um, this, so the psychopath test mm -hmm. is, is, is a, yeah. a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, and I'm including in the show notes um, a link to another episode of Monster Talk um, in which they interview um, John Ronson about his book, The Psychopath mm, Test, okay. and looking at like monsters among us. So oh. um, little. Yeah. So that'll be in the show notes. But will this get us our crossover episode with Monster Talk? Will it? <laughs> Continuing from the Life Science article, uh, next, the researchers had a students play a, quote, prisoner's dilemma game in which each person was given a sum of money that they could keep for themselves or transfer to a partner for whom it would be doubled. The students who scored higher on the questionnaire, meaning that they were more psychopathic by those definitions, were more likely to betray their partner and keep the money for themselves if that partner interrupted them more frequently, a sign of disrespect. Or... Of ah, growing up in it's okay. <laughs> a Jewish cultural tradition. Maybe we should link to that article, oh. too. Remember that oh. thing? Remember that yeah. thing I sent you? Yeah. yeah. So, so I had sent 
Amber an article See, previously. Look, look, norms are socially whatever. I know. Yeah. So I had sent Amber an article a while back that talked about a very specifically sort of European Jew social behavior that involves if you are engaged in a conversation, like you are actively engaged in listening, you're more likely to interrupt the person because you get get so excited to like contribute and be like, yes, I understand you. I'm with you. And you do so by interrupting. And I do this all the time, much to the annoyance of people around me, I think. But, but for me, it just means I'm excited about what we're talking about. I'm not, and, and here it is a sign of disrespect. So Again, social construct. Okay, continuing. The more psychopathic students were also more likely to betray a partner with whom they appeared to have less in common and were therefore and were therefore less likely to see again. In other words, those with more psychopathic tendencies only cooperated if there was something in it for them. The findings show that people who have psychopathic traits are flexible in their ability to cooperate with others. So for me, uh, me, Anna, editorializing now, um, this is Anna's Jewish learning. Anna's Jewish learning.com. No, this is more Anna's primatology learning.com. This is, for me, it seems like the other side of the altruism coin because altruism evolved in lots of species, but very noticeably in primate groups. And, and that kind of makes sense in a weird way because altruism is a way to ensure a family group's overall success, even at the cost of some members of that family. So, for example, there are instances where groups of monkeys will have sort of sentries posted to look out for predators, and those monkeys will give alarm calls that specifically mean if they see a predator, they go, oh, no, a a jaguar, or like, oh, no, an eagle, and it means specific things. Is that monkey alarm call example? Yes, what you put in the script? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like, ah. I mean, I could something. do that. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like. But there has been research done, and there are different and specific alarm calls for different predators because, you know, if you hear, oh, no, an eagle, you need to move down the tree because eagles come at you from above. But if you hear, oh, no, a jaguar, move up the tree because jaguars are on the ground. So it means different things. But specifically, it's an altruistic behavior because you you as the alarm calling monkey are putting yourself at risk in order to save your family because by yelling, oh, no, you are allowing a predator to pinpoint you by sound and you are putting yourself at risk. So altruism is doing a behavior that is disadvantageous to you, but advantageous to others in your social group. So this seems like, to me, it makes sense that there would be a reversal of that behavior, ensuring the preservation of the individual and not the group. And in that those instances, if the individual is preserved and that behavior is somehow informed by, by genetics, that that tendency to preserve oneself over the group would be passed on. And so... I'm, I'm totally speculating wildly even, here. It doesn't but, even sound like, but I don't see how this this is by default the opposite of the altruism thing. Because if they're saying they're more likely to like screw over the other party mm-hmm. if they have less in common with them, so wouldn't that be? Couldn't that be argued that in order to benefit their group, they are willing to? Um, do something to the detriment of something not within their group. That's true. Yeah. So I was thinking of sort of all humans as a group, which is so. I'm talking of like intra monkey, intra not like in- <laughs> like 
<laughs> intra-monkey dynamics. Yeah. No, that's it's just something sort of interesting to kind of chew over. Moving on from that interesting and legitimate but thing also, to think like, about. But also, think about the stakes. If you're doing like an experiment in the classroom, which is just a bunch of 19-year-olds being like, I don't know this kid. He's not my friend. And like, like you just like do it to like game it. Like and like the, not and what's on though, the line is three dollars. Yeah, not that I'm saying that like we actually need to like deprive people of resources for the name of science and see what happens. No, but of course I not. think that like perhaps because you could just watch the stakes are very Survivor. low. We'll just well, watch reality that, that's a TV. Game. I know that's an actual game. It's so, an, it's a game people, with high stakes though. But it's still a game because like people. But you can't now. You can't use reality TV as an actual example because people like develop careers just yeah, off of I being know. the jerk. I know. So, like, I I wonder if we extrapolate, but because like there are studies that that look at behavior in actual like crisis context contexts and yeah. like disaster aftermath that show that people actually are far more altruistic. Yeah, I than, mean that's that's the than these studies that we really to do believe. need to look out here. Yeah, like maybe we should do fewer studies on nineteen-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a tell us what humans do. Uh, but it's, I don't know. Tell me more about things that we read. Well, for this. I I sure did read this article, but <laughs> I sure did send this article to you to read. <laughs> you sure did that to me. You did it to me, not for me. It wasn't very altruistic of you. Okay, so this is an article from. And I should have known. This is an article from the, <laughs> <I know. laughs> This is an article from the New York Post with a frankly irresponsible title. And the title is Successful Cavemen Were Serial Killers. All right, well here's that article. Or at least excerpted bits of it. There's a serial killer lurking inside you. <laughs> That's one of the provocative theories outlined by author Peter Vronsky in his authoritative tome. That's a word for it. Quote, Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. End quote. Sons of Cain takes readers from Stone Age brutality to the werewolves and vampires whose exploits of rape, murder, necrophilia, and cannibalism were memorialized. Neanderthals? In- mm were memorialized in European folklore to the atrocities of Ed Kemper and Jeffrey Dahmer. Ed Kemper was a huge dude. Maybe a Neanderthal. What were his pupils like? Slitted? He did have to wear glasses. So do I. So do you. (laughs) Perhaps the most chilling prospect that Vronsky's 432-page volume raises is his convincing argument that all humans are that all humans are genetically hardwired to become serial killers and have to be unmade into law-abiding citizens. So dumb. In his book, Vronsky outlines a theory of the brain first proposed in the 1960s when everything was correct by Yale University neuroscience where they're always correct. <laughs> I also said neuroscientist, so I should shut up. <laughs> By Yale University neuroscientist Paul McLean. Driving the murderous impulse is a small knot at the base of the brain called the basal ganglia, also known as the R complex or the reptilian brain. Okay, can I just point out here when um, Oliver Sacks, the, the prominent neuroscientist, died? Neuroscience. A neuroscientist, yes. scientist. When when he died, um, I made a commemorative pesto that I called a basal ganglia. Yeah. And then you 
something something are complex. There we go. My jokes are complex. (laughs) 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 I gotta go. Okay. Uh, so, well, that basal ganglia uh, is our reptilian brain. This most primitive part of our brain regulates self and species preserving behaviors, including the four F's of evolutionary survival fleeing, fighting, feeding, and mating. For at least 100,000 years, Homo sapiens existed in a natural state of cannibalism, rape, murder, and then simply running away, Vronsky said. God, what? <laughs> No, it gets better. Next line. He told the post, quote, that's all. We spent the whole day doing just that and nothing but that. End quote. Paul Vronsky, everybody. A total war death clash between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens left the latter as the only humanoid species on Earth about 30 to 40,000 years ago. Is he buddies with Danny Benjamini? Do they know each other? I lived 31 years of my life not knowing that literally anyone thought this. (laughs) And then this month, I learned that at least two people think this. Now we're going to see it everywhere. Uh, according to this Bader-Meinhof thing, I know it is a Bader-Meinhof. Uh, okay, so according to Vronsky, the price that humanity paid was very <laughs> steep. Okay, I'm going to leave it there because I have had enough of this. But listeners, you can find this article on our show notes if you want to read more. Instead, while Amber cackles, I'm going to finish up this segment with an instance of blatant editorializing by me, because it's what I consider a more meaningful consideration of psychopathy from the abstract of a 2011 issue of the journal Jurametrics. Quote, Individuals with psychopathic personality, or psychopaths, have a disproportionate impact on the criminal justice system. Psychopaths are 20 to 25 times more likely than non-psychopaths to be in prison, four four to eight times more likely to violently recidivate compared to non-psychopaths, as in re-crime, and are resistant to most forms of treatment. This article presents the most current clinical efforts and neuroscience research in the field of psychopathy. Given psychopathy's enormous impact on society in general and on the criminal justice system in particular, there are significant benefits to increasing awareness of the condition. And again, this is from 2011. That's eight years ago. And given the changes in in the DSM, it seems like awareness and and um, interest in treatment is increasing, which is positive. Yeah. So, but this is a good example of structural stigma. Indeed. Indeed it is. Um, and so in when they talk about psychopathy, um, the criminal justice system talks a lot about the dark triad, um, which consists of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And so those are all personality what would we call that personality disorders personality no, you just you traits? just call them traits okay they're okay. just traits i want to so, make sure so, semantically we get this right so the um we would probably be the first to try oh, okay. that okay well um so okay so the the like this is big in criminal justice and not so much like applied psychology and psychiatry as it is those steps that you get away from it where you're trying to like apprehend criminals or okay. understand criminals or okay. write profiling like, or scripts okay okay um 
So, um, so when you do like the psychopath test, like what right. they're looking, when you say like, all that matters to me is the bottom line, like that's what the way they're trying to one. assess your, your traits. Okay. Um, and so, um, I, man, this is tough. This is a lot of hard reading. Um, so you can do it. I believe in you. So, um, well, no, this, I just, um, this is from Wikipedia because there will be, uh, we'll get there. Okay. Alrighty. So. The dark triad are associated with a callous, manipulative, interpersonal style. Um, for their benefit, for the dark triad's purposes, narcissism is characterized by grandiosity, pride, egotism, and a lack of empathy. Machiavellianism is characterized by manipulation and exploitation of others, an absence of morality, unemotional callousness, and a higher level of self-interest. And psychopathy is characterized by continuous antisocial behavior, impulsivity, selfishness, callous, and unemotional traits. See you. Uh, the abbreviation. I'm not yeah, I calling didn't, Anna yes. out on being callous and unemotional. Oh, and I thought you were just saying bye. See you. <laughs> okay. Go. So building off of this, there's the dark tetrad, which adds another one. There's the big five, which adds like humility and humanity, I think. And then what I'm disappointed they didn't call the sinister six. Um, and then it caps out with a dirty dozen. What? And so these hey, are where who? like okay. they're trying to find traits that because if you if, so if you've watched Mindhunter, I watched you one see episode the, and gave up. Man, see my my other podcast, Mind Hinter, in which I <laughs> talk about how I just still keep watching it. Um, but that's where they tried to um, quantify evil. Um, and so, if you're not quite nailing it with the the three, then you go to four, and then five, and then six, and then there's the dirty dozen, which some other folks have put forward as a, a set of, of traits to look for in plot and finding out like what will um what can possibly predict or perhaps um account for antisocial action and criminal actions. So I tried reading a bunch of articles about this, but gosh, I am not a psychologist. Um, I'll include an overview of the first decade of research done on the dark triad, which was published in social and personality psychology compass, huh. uh, which was really interesting, but also maybe we shouldn't be letting randos like me and the New York post just going for it when it yeah. comes to talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if so really I like, made a huge mistake but speaking of anna yeah your boy peter vronsky My thinks boy. we're cresting another wave of serial killers here soon um coincidentally oh, when his new book is out oh Quick my god from an interview with him and vice canada the book sons of cain took Vronsky years of researching and at least four years of writing my god which like no shame there <laughs> i'm getting no. there no, no. um in it he argues that thanks to wars in the Middle East and the financial crash in twenty in 2008, we might see a surge of serial killers in two decades. But most distressingly, he also argues that hidden deep down inside of us, there exists a serial killer. Great. Just the one. Just the one. One cool, specific cool, one cool, in cool, everyone. Cool, cool, cool. Just... Yeah. Is it God? I don't know. We got to read that anthropology of evil. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is God evil? Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> Boy, we really have been uh, posting up some ideas on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Woof. Okay. Um, so kind of jumping off this idea of the dark triad, which would you say, Amber, that I am correct if I say that the dark triad that you just talked about very much kind of slinks out of your Western European kind of cultural frameworks, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, well, here is the abstract of a study conducted by Dr. Peter Jonason at Western Sydney University in Australia. Who I am who I am personally blaming for this art this entire episode. Because he did a really cool thing about the dark triad and other he did a presentation on it at A and oh. and I was like, oh, I'm gonna do an episode on this. And then lo and then, these many months later, I'm like, well crap. <laughs> I can't. Oh. So, oh no. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Jonason, this is on you. Uh, no, this is the abstract of, of his study. Quote Most studies on the dark triad traits tend to rely on samples from English speaking slash Western countries and fail to account for country level variants. In this study, we drew on data from 49 countries, N equals 11,723, meaning that many people samples, to examine how a series of country-level variables in economic status, for example, gross domestic product per capita, social relations, like gender equality, political orientations, like militarization, and social values, like power distance, relate to country-level rates of the dark triad traits and variance in the magnitude of sex differences in those dark triad traits. Harsher economic conditions were associated with more narcissism and psychopathy, whereas more, quote, liberal social conditions and values were associated with larger sex differences in the narcissism and psychopathy. In the second part of this study, we collected data from two countries, with a total of 557 participants, that differ in socio-ecological conditions. Uh, and these were Turkey and Australia, and measured perceptions of a dangerous and competitive world and individual differences in the dark triad traits. Turkish participants were higher in dark triad traits than Australian participants were, and this was a function of competitive worldviews, and these um, these competitive worldviews were stronger in men. So, like, you got to take so many variables into consideration. You can't just slap these diagnoses onto someone without yeah. considering all of these frameworks. You hear that, Jonathan Groff's character in Mindhunter? Keep yelling, he'll hear you. Oh, God, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, jumping over to other cultures and kind of mythology and ancient history... Just for a little, oh, a little, a little palate cleanser. <laughs> God, real people are too hard. Um, let's let's talk deities. So we've got Apep or Apophis was the ancient Egyptian deity who embodied chaos. Uh, is fit in I Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, maybe? Because who knows? We've established that. Yeah. Who knows? Is fit. Yeah. Is yeah. Um, and was thus the opponent of light and ma'at, which is order or truth. He appears in art as a giant serpent. Apep was first yeah. mentioned he in says, the... He says... Isfit. Yep. I got it. I got it. Yep. I see what you did Thank there. Apep was first mentioned in the 8th dynasty, and he was honored in the names of the 14th dynasty king Apepi... And of the greater Hyksos king, Apophis. Notable character in Stargate. You don't. 
The few descriptions of Apep's origin in myth usually demonstrate that it was born after Ra. It? He? I don't know. It was born after Ra, usually from his umbilical cord. Combined with its absence from Egyptian creation myths, this has been interpreted as suggesting that Apep was not a primordial force in Egyptian theology, but a consequence of Ra's birth. This suggests that evil in Egyptian theology is the consequence of an individual's own struggles against non-existence. So there's that kind of altruism, self-preservation thing, maybe. But little, little like pop up. Marxism. Um, It could also be that Apep appears later because it is um, you like it would emerge as a um, mechanism for social control Mm. or a mechanism for vilifying something to like othering and vilifying and like this is bad. Don't do it. Like this is why the Pharaoh is doing this as a representative of Ra on Earth. And this is why he is in opposition to Isfet because... Yeah, he needed something to... Okay, well, we'll leave that there. (laughs) Tales of Apep's battles against Ra were elaborated during the New Kingdom, so that makes sense. Oh? Oh, really? Storytellers said that every day, Apep must lay below the horizon and not persist in the mortal kingdom. This appropriately made him a part of the underworld. In some stories, Apep waited for Ra in a western mountain called Bahu, where the sun set, and in others... Azerbaijan? (laughs) And in others, he lurked just before dawn in the tenth region of the night. Is this some kind of like concept album? I don't want to talk about it. Okay. I don't... <laughs> the it's wide really range, hard. The wide range of Apep's <laughs> possible locations gained him the title World Encircler. It was thought that his terrifying roar would cause the underworld to rumble. Myths sometimes say that. What a terrifying roar! <laughs> Myths sometimes say that Apep was trapped there because he had been the previous chief god overthrown by Ra or because he was evil and had been imprisoned. And that last bit was really interesting to me because there are echoes of these images and these ideas in Norse mythology as well. Probably lots of other mythologies, but um, there's a massive serpent or sometimes a sea serpent, Jormungandr, who encircles the world and then you know interacts with some of the various gods and if he so he's he's an ouroboros he's a snake biting his tail and so if he lets go of his tail that's the beginning of ragnarok the end of the world so if you like the last battle don't do it don't tickle that snake dummy and then finally danger noodle indeed oh the biggest danger noodle boy we are really infantilizing this whole cultural thing huh Okay, finally. I'm just infantilizing snakes. <laughs> snakes. Finally, because of course, a story of old, old, old murder <laughs> by Christina Kilgrove. This case is so cold, it's from the Ice Age. Nah, bro. It's not, though. It's all- I know, right? Okay. <laughs> but I, I it is, at the it date is written and then I was like, ah, oh, crap. Patron saint of this podcast, Christina Kilgrove, writing for Forbes. So, world's oldest cold case, a 430,000-year-old murder victim found in pit of bones. That's the title. It's a good title. So cold, it's older than the Ice Age. All right. Keep workshopping it. Let me know what you get by the end of this article. The skull is found in a cave covered in red clay. A lone wisdom tooth remains, erupted and with only slight wear. The individual was a young adult. 
Although the skull was shattered into dozens of pieces, two depression fractures are clearly evident, the result of blunt force trauma to the head at the time of death. Evidence of homicide builds. But this was not a recent event, as the skull in question dates to 430,000 years ago. It is the world's first murder, discovered at Cima de los Huesos, or the Pit of Bones in the Arapuerca Mountains of Spain. This research was published in 2015 in the journal PLOS One, and researchers Noemi Sala, Sala? I don't know. Researchers Noemi Sala and colleagues lay out their evidence for this middle Pleistocene cold case. If this were a modern murder trial, a jury might hear the following evidence. The skull in question is from a young adult. In spite of the fact that it is broken, it is relatively complete, including the face, part of the upper jaw, and most of the cranial vault. Researchers also 3D scanned and reconstructed it to enable further study of the perimortem and postmortem fractures, or those that happened around the time of death and after death. Two perimortem injuries were found, and both appear to be blunt force traumas. These injuries are located above the left eye orbit and affect both the inner and outer layers of the skull bones. So, you know, they were hard enough to fracture the whole skull bone. Both have distinct notches along the fracture, and both have evidence of radiating fracture lines that connect the injuries. As force is applied to a bone, small cracks or fissures often radiate out from the main point of impact. There are no signs that either of these fractures had started to heal at the time of death, and no signs that predators feasted on the body or that geological events caused the identically shaped injuries. This is not a case of accidental injury. As the researchers write, quote, unintentional trauma typically affects the sides of the cranial vault, while intentional injuries are more commonly found in the facial region, end quote. This type of cranial depression fracture, the researchers say, is, quote, more likely to be to be the result of interpersonal violence, end quote. Someone took a swing, or rather two swings, at this person. The fact that the injuries are above the left eye could mean a right-handed assailant attacked this individual face-to-face. Cool, right? Yeah. Forensics, yeah. But how did this murder victim come to rest in the Cima de los Huesos cave site? Sala and colleagues write, Quote, the individual was already dead before their arrival at the site, and it is possible to rule out an accidental fall. I want to point out here, Simo de los Huesos is accessible only by a chute. Like there's the cave and then kind of a, a chimney of the cave. So it's like a hole in the ground and then a long shaft and then the cave. So it's not so like it's a cave a you could walk de los into. Huesos. Well, no, Simo de los Huesos. <laughs> Anyway, it's not a cave you could just walk into. It's not like someone walked into this cave and got punched in the face and died. Something else happened. Quote, the individual was already dead before their arrival at the site, and it is possible to rule out an accidental fall. The only possible manner by which a deceased individual could have arrived at the Cima de los Huesos site is if the cadaver were dropped down the shaft. End quote. A Pleistocene murder most foul covered up by a body dump. And then Dr. Kilgrove ends by saying, unfortunately, some things have not changed in 430,000 years. Let's have an ad! Hey, fans of APN Podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. 
Okay. All right. Let's end this. <laughs> <laughs> and let's end it with some fun facts from history and archaeology about the real Machiavelli. Woo-hoo. So we're, yeah, we're talking about Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, and so remember from what I was talking about, the dark triad at all, um, Machiave- Machiavellianism is characterized by manipulation and exploitation of others, an absence of morality, unemotional callousness, and a higher level of self-interest. Born. <laughs> so this comes from, <laughs> this comes from the, um, the, um, John from Johns Hopkins, Hopkins University, University yeah. their, their, uh, magazine when, uh, one of their faculty members released a book, um, in 2015 entitled Machiavelli, a portrait. <laughs> so <clears throat> born in the Renaissance epicenter of Florence in 1469 CE, Machiavelli was raised in a middle-class household. His father was a noted attorney ah. in which he was taught to write in Tuscan and educated in Latin while studying the ancient classics. He came of age during a turbulent period in which papacies waged wars against Italian city-states and political and tribal factionalism ran rampant. Violence and unrest loomed over the era. Hangings occurred all the time and were a public spectacle. You know, the kind of thing you want to take your kids to see. Yeah, for sure. In 1498, Machiavelli was elected to serve as Secretary of Florence's second chancery. Which sounds like a a lottery emporium, but it's not. Florence's second chancery sounds like a, like animal oh, shelter oh oh i was gonna say <laughs> or a, a consignment, consignment shop <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well if podcasting doesn't work out for us while he was there at florence's second chancery uh, machiavelli issued government documents and engaged in approximately 50 diplomatic missions but in 1512 the medici family remember them <laughs> From what? famous, yeah. Re- ever <laughs> heard of them? to power in florence remember them from the past <laughs> <laughs> As featured in the past. Um, (laughs) They returned to power in Florence and Machiavelli was kicked out of office, accused of conspiracy, imprisoned and tortured. He was released after three weeks, but placed under house arrest at his family estate with not much to do. Machiavelli got really super duper into politics and wrote letters, political treatises and other works. Among said works during that period is The Prince, the thing that we get Machiavellianism from. Yeah, that um, so, thing that you have to um, read for that one, like, political That one poli-sci class. Yeah. class, and then, like, every once in a while, you, like, go on a Tinder date where somebody's like, oh, yeah, I read that. And you're like, nope, bye. Goodbye. But, I mean, love who you love. Sure. It's fine. Um, so the the author of this this biography, Chalenza, says Machiavelli's masterpiece, published posthumously, was never intended by its author to be consumed by generations of political scientists. <laughs> yep. Uh, if only somebody had told Roger Stone that. Nope. Abort. Abort. <laughs> Keep reading the script. <laughs> I feel like that's that's an apolitical statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This guy, man. So, The Prince aptly demonstrates that Machiavelli was a product of his times and a pragmatist when exploring the dimensions of power. Machiavelli says violence is only when is says violence is only when there is clear justification 
which seems less like a psychopath or sociopath, but a pragmatist writing something he didn't really intend for people to consume so avidly or take so literally and who had been conditioned by the social framework of his time. Um, so it's, it's a bit, it's, it's more of like an, it's more like a thought, a thought piece, like an exploration of something. Yeah. Um, rather than a, you know, a set of actual how to live your life guidelines. Yeah. Because remember, this was written by a guy like forced into retirement as it were. And having been tortured and living in a time where, you know, capital punishment was an obvious and kind of socially lauded thing. Yeah. And yeah, it was a really different um, set of circumstances. Yeah. But you don't have to just listen to me. Or that guy that you met on Tinder. Um, we can provide you with some evidence in the form of a 500-year-old arrest warrant for Machiavelli. Yeah. Uh, so, finally, some archaeology. <laughs> at, at hour one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Professor Stephen Milner of the University of Manchester came across the first... Fifteen thirteen proclamation buried in the state archives in Florence. The document began a chain of events that marked a change in the civil servants, being Machiavelli, uh, political fortunes leading to the writing of the prince later that same year and eventually resulting in his death 14 years later in abject poverty. The prince's 500 year anniversary uh, was celebrated in the city of Florence, um, beginning with the reconstruction of the events surrounding Machiavelli's capture and imprisonment. Wait. Yeah. Wait. Be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Machiavelli reenactor. <laughs> uh, Reenactments are so fascinating. Um, okay, keep going. The festivities include the vocal announcement of Machiavelli's arrest proclamation by a town crier mounted on a horse and armed with a silver trumpet to attract the attention of crowds around Florence. <laughs> the sights within the, the... Can you imagine just being a tourist and not knowing this was happening? And then just like... They'd be like, they uh, do this all the time uh, <laughs> with the bird masks. <laughs> the sights within the city where the town crier would have actually read out the proclamation have been mapped by Professor Milner, who examined hundreds of such documents dating between 1470 and 1530 in order to be able to do so. His further st- further discoveries have shed light on the payments made to four horsemen who of searched the, the streets from us. <laughs> Just of the arrest. Oh. Um, the, the, who searched the streets for Machiavelli and the cash they received for his capture. Uh, Professor Milner described finding the original proclamation, quote, when I saw it, I knew exactly what it was, and it was pretty exciting. When you realize this document marked from marked the fall from grace of one of the world's most influential political writers, it's quite a feeling. One of the world's most influential political writers who didn't mean to be one of the world's most influential. And also, it's not so much a fall from grace as his, like, Joker origin. Yeah. The term Machiavellian and the naming of the devil as Old Nick. What? Nicola. <laughs> His name is no, Nicola. Like, why, why would you call the devil Old Nick? <laughs> it's, that's a really old... Yeah, it's a thing. What? Yeah. Nick Scratch, Old Nick. I just... Oh, no. Old Scratch. Nick's... Oh. Nick Scratch, Old Scratch, Old Nick. Did I just put it together? <laughs> All derived from this single work. <laughs> But to the but the circumstances of its composition have often been overlooked. On the return of the Medici faction to power in 1512, 
Machiavelli was removed from his post in the city's chancery because mm. of this close association with the previous leading citizen and head of the Republican government, Piero Sorrini. When his name was linked to a conspiracy to overthrow the Medici, they wasted no time in seeking his capture using the proclamation that Milner Professor discovered. Milner, yeah, sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> On the same day, he was imprisoned, tortured, and later released and placed under house arrest outside the city. The prince was written in the vain hope of gaining favor and employment with the Medici. (laughs) But there's no evidence to suggest they even read it. So rude. So that's the thing. Like, he wrote this treatise on how to be a ruthless and effective politician for the Medici. So, like, there was a slant to it. Yeah. Also, they kind of had it handled what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Indeed. Well, listeners, we hope you've given, we've given you a, a sumptuous banquet of food for thought. Sorry, no creepy pasta this time. Mm, just, num, num. just confusing cavatappi. <laughs> um, and so we're just going to wrap it up here. <laughs> narcissistic gnocchi (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but this is uh, but we might we might touch on this again because uh, we've really only scratched the surface (laughs) bravo high five me dog okay she's asleep (laughs) it's fine Oh, well, for better or worse, we will be back in your ears soon with new episodes on the podcatcher of your choosing. And thank you, as always, for listening, for your support, for the reviews you leave. Um, Sorry, Charity and Lynette, for thanking you on this episode. (laughs) But thank you for your support (laughs) and for telling your friends about us. If you want to find us on the social medias, we are at The Dirt Podcast on Facebook, at Dirt Podcast on Twitter, and at The Dirt Pod on Instagram. And all of that lives together in harmony at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find episodes in our merch store. Woo! And if you love what we do and you want to throw a dollar or two our way to help us produce that sweet, sweet content, you can support us with a sponsored episode or become a dirtbag at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Okay, bye. Bye. Get out. Okay. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.